I'm Denise. I'm the Scottish one. And she's a non-fiction editor. And I'm Louise, the English one. And she's a fiction editor. And together, we're the Editing Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Editing Podcast. So thank you to everyone for responding to our video about this Q&A. We've had an absolutely tremendous response. Yeah, thank you so much for those cues. And now it's time for the A's. <laughs> <laughs> so we've divided this into two episodes so we can spend a little bit more time on the questions. So let's crack on, Louise. Right. So the first question was from Joanne in Canada, and she said, how do you handle authors not getting their work to you on time? I work in the proposals department of a large engineering company and the authors almost always meet their deadlines. How do you project manage this part of the process? So um, I'll start with this and mm -hmm. Denise can come in later. I work with um, direct with indie fiction authors, Joanne. So um, it's it's part of my terms and conditions that the booking and the advance booking fee of £500 is an agreed is for an agreed slot in my schedule. If the client doesn't deliver, then they lose the slot and the deposit. Um, and I find that when someone stands to lose 500 quid, they tend to make sure they're going to be on time. Um, and I brought in this policy after a well-intentioned author let me down and I found the confidence to do it when another author with whom I'd already worked um, had to cancel and offered to pay me for the work he was cancelling bef before I had this policy in place. And he's such a professional and my ideal type of client. So my my advice with indies is to make sure that your T's and C's are, are clear about what the deal is, not just with deposits, but with cancellations too. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I think we all learn that as we go along with our indie mm. authors and just keep revising and adding to our T's and C's, don't we? Yeah, I think... Um, these are all really good points for indie authors, but with, when you're working with publishers, it's it's trickier and you have you do have to be more flexible. Yeah. Um, I've been burned a couple of times because there's been a couple of occasions where a publisher's schedule has changed and they've forgotten to tell me. Um, and I haven't found out until I was, you know, the day I was expecting to receive mm. files. And then, you know, I'm chasing my in-house contact and... They're like, oh gosh, no, we haven't. Did we not tell you? It's shifted by a month or whatever. That's a nightmare. It is a nightmare, and and some it's nobody's nobody's deliberately leaving you out the loop. But mm. I think sometimes they're so focused on the in-house, they forget about the freelancers that are you know mm. coming a bit further down the line. So I've learnt from that experience, and now, depending on how long the lead time is, how far ahead I've been booked. I'll generally check in with my in-house contact about a month before um, a, a um, project's due to start just to, you know, say hello and ask if everything's on track. And um, then obviously if there's been changes, they can let me know. And then certainly a week before, I will always um, just drop them a line just to check things are still the way they should be. Yeah. And then the, the day, even the day before, I'll say, I'm expecting these files today. Let me know if anything's changed. But I mean, essentially, it is out of your control, especially if you're doing, um, like I often do for publishers, it's proofreading, which is right at the very, very end of a huge, long, complex process. And, um, you know, it's not even in your in-house editor's control. There are so many other factors um, that, that are influencing when these files ultimately get to you. What I would say is that if they do delay big time at short notice, I ask if there's any replacement work. Um, they're not going to pay you for the time that you've booked. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can't expect that the way that you can with an indie author. Um, but I do ask if there's any replacement work. And, and often there's something um, that they can put your way. It may not be the same amount, but it's 
that's the best. That is the thing from. with publishers, I guess, they do have a, a stream of work. It's not just one project. So yeah. that there is a chance that you don't have with, uh, usually with an indie author, um, mm -hmm. that, that you will be, they will be able to give you something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and another point is, is that I will often have more than one project running at a time just to cover my back, just because you just don't that's know how these schedules are going to work. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and I think it's also worth saying as well that with indie authors, some of them can forget that um, if they're late, it has an impact on the other clients that you have, and you can't necessarily just push the work on because it'll impact the clients that are booked after them. Um, and exactly, and that's not fair. That's yeah. not fair. Even even yeah. something like three days. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if you've if you've lost. If you if you're doing a two week project and and your your author's late by three days, um, but the project you've got booked in after that is only for a week, yeah, um, you're suddenly left with only two days to yes. do to do a week's worth of work, and it's exactly. impossible. So yeah. that's why it can't happen like that. Uh, yeah, so you can't I, you can't push another client's work on because a different no. client is late. So you know, yeah, exactly. The squeeze happens with you usually. Yeah. So our next question um, was from Linda in the US and Melanie um, also chimed in from the UK with a similar concern. And um, they were asking about dealing with burnout and or procrastination. And Linda said um, she thinks that they go hand in hand. Um, and then she says, I get to the point where I'm not wanting to do the work because it doesn't light me up anymore. Yeah. So um, I guess this could apply on a project by project basis or it could be a more ongoing thing. You didn't actually say, Linda, um, what um, if it was um, if, if when you've experienced it, uh, this, it was it was in either of those particular scenarios. But um, but I do think it's something that people are struggling with a little bit more than usual at the moment. Um, I think a lot of us have, have, have certainly had days when we've all felt we've lost our editing mojo. Yeah. Um, so Definitely. yeah, we can all we can all have that and and all procrastinate a little bit. Some of us more than others. <laughs> well, yes, I'll, I'll raise my hand here. Uh, Louise knows that I am a number one procrastinator. Um, I need a deadline to get work done, and I tend to work pretty close to them, don't I, Louise? <laughs> <laughs> but you always meet them. I do. And if you hadn't wondered what we're talking about, we're talking about how sometimes how we organise our, our various tasks to do with putting this podcast together. But Denise <laughs> is never late. She always, always meets her deadline. But um, she she's also someone who does, she's maybe sometimes more likely to leave it to the last minute, probably because yeah. it's not a, a necessary a priority because um, it's not, I, I'm not paying her. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, but anyway, yeah. here are some ideas for the two of you, Linda and Melanie. Um, so the first is to try to mix something else into your schedule that you really love to do. Mm -hmm. So Denise is building a new website and developing her proofreading training course suite. And I'm mm -hmm. creating some deep dive um, guides for fiction editors and authors. And um, and these are these things are connected with but different to the day-to-day -day practice of editing and so they're a change for me and um and for denise um, which is as good as the rest or so they say Absolutely, so i recommend yeah. you 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 think about that you know is there something you can you can introduce into your day that's just new and and related to your business but fun yeah definitely Exciting. yeah and i think um i think it's important to um to reflect a little bit and ask yourself why is it that you're burned out or procrastinating? If you can answer that question, what is it that's affecting your mojo? What are the triggers? Is it this COVID-19 pandemic that we're all dealing with? 
Um, why, why isn't your work doing it for you? Is it the area that you're working with? Have you got stuck in a routine? Maybe you need to switch up your clients or explore new challenges like Louise was saying by sort of expanding your range a little bit. Sometimes it's because it's low paid work and, and we don't feel valued with what we're doing. Mm. And I think it can be very easy um, for editors to, and proofreaders to get stuck in a hamster wheel of needing to do the work for the money, having to work all the hours, not having time to look elsewhere and just starting to resent it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it can really build up over time and creep up on us before we actually realise that that's what's happening. Um, and even just simple things like, you know, getting out and getting a bit more fresh air if you can can help or five minutes of mindful breathing practice or yoga that's my new thing at the moment I've been doing a daily yoga practice or meditation just introducing little things that just are refreshing can make a difference I think mm. and um this is something that Denise and I have both been doing at the moment, actually, um, because I was wondering about whether a change in diet might help you. So we both switched to lowish carb diets and um, yeah. we're both feeling a lot more energised. We were talking about this, weren't we? Cause, partly because yeah. I think because we're sort of doing it at the same time, we're doing it together. But mm -hmm. even though we live hundreds of miles apart, but um, <laughs> yeah. it's definitely physically affected me. I mean, apart from losing a bit of weight, um, mm -hmm. I've just I got a sorry it, it made a difference quite quickly as well i think that's yeah. the thing yeah, yeah. so um, it wouldn't necessarily be a low, car low carb diet that would work for you but it might be that a change of diet in some way yeah. would just, help just yeah switch it up yeah <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that i wanted to mention for linda was um whether it's joining something like a an accountability group might help where you can work together to set each other goals, uh, not just about editing, but other sort of side-related work too. You love an accountability group, do. don't you, Denise? Oh, I do. I'm in, uh, I'm, uh, one point I was in three. Um, I'm in t two properly now. And I just love them. They, they serve different functions, you know, um, yeah. and I get a lot, a lot out from them. And they are becoming more popular, definitely. And lots of editors are in accountability groups. Um, but the other thing I would suggest is to uh, watch Louise's unboring business planning video because in that she talks about business planning as being like a gift to yourself. You know, what do you want and how will you get it? So this kind of planning might inspire you or get your creative juices fired up. It might. It might. So think of the paid for editing work as the means to those ends because that's what will subsidise it. So do you want a new PC or to buy a particular training course or learn a new skill? Or maybe take up a new hobby. If editing's the thing that facilitates that because it provides the income that will pay for it, then it's got a new purpose. Mm. I, I, yeah, I, I think sometimes that can really help to sort of you to actually just remember why yeah. why we're doing this stuff and yeah. and sort of focus um, in a wee bit, yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing that you might consider is creating new revenue streams from your editing knowledge like courses books mm -hmm. webinars training consultancy and maybe dedicating some time to creating plans about what those would look like and strategies for how to bring them alive and make them visible would be exciting that stuff is hard work melanie we know you know this because of that proofreading research project you yeah. did huge amazing thing but um it's that that kind of process can be energizing at least i hope it was energizing for you Melody. Um, but it's energizing because it's new not because yeah. it's not hard work yeah and sometimes you don't need to have a, an end date in mind for something like that but just mm. ex, just exploring an idea and and mapping it out can can be quite invigorating really yeah yeah, yeah. 
The other thing you might want to think about is maybe you'd like to collaborate with somebody on a project. Um, obviously, Louise and I do the podcast together. Uh, not only does that half the work, but it makes it fun and, and we can mm. hold each other accountable. So we don't get burned <laughs> out because we're too busy making sure we don't let each other down. That is so true, though. Yeah, so yeah. true. And if we do get stuck with time, well, we just check in with each other and we help each other out. So it's like someone has your back, which is, is amazing. So think about how you might scale your business sideways or introduce some variety into it with someone who thinks like you and who you already have a great relationship with. And just um, one more thing to say on this issue. Um, you don't have to love your job 24-7, 365 days a year. I mean, sometimes it's interesting because, you know, some of the Facebook, the editing Facebook forums, you you know, you hear, I hear some of my colleagues talking about how they live and breathe editing. They were sort of born to edit. And and I I do like my, I, I love my job. And sometimes I don't love it. Sometimes I, I just like it on certain days. It You know, it just, and that might not be the, the client's, um, anything to do with the client's work. It might just be how I'm feeling but um it's okay if it's not feeling like a vacation it's okay to do a great job without it being the be all and end all you don't have to live and breathe it my husband is a good example he's someone who's great at his job he's very dedicated but he's not shy about saying he'd like to be paid to watch the telly all day (laughs) (laughs) so you know like some sometimes it's just like that's the way it goes you know you, you feel you feel like you're procrastinating over stuff you feel like you're a bit burnt out but it's it's your job yeah yeah. And that's okay. It's absolutely fine. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to the next question. And it's from Alexa here in the UK. And Alexa asks, um, how do I get more fiction editing work from indie authors? She says, most of my work is for publishers and is generally non-fiction, although I've worked on some children's fiction and picture books. I'm going to do Louise's Switching to Fiction course, but I'm not sure how to market it as a specialism when it isn't that just yet. So I think for this one, I'm going to hand over to Louise. <laughs> um, so my right? advice. No, should I? Should I have had you? I don't know. Oh, go on. I'll have a crack at it. Okay. <laughs> Just won't let you near any of the, any of the um, business or educational questions. <laughs> okay. Um, so Alexa, my most successful strategy has been a content marketing strategy. So creating blogs, booklets, um, other types of content that answer fiction authors problems and what that means is that you don't have to worry about whether someone knows it's your specialism or not what you're doing is making that particular kind of type of content visible on the search engines and so that when authors visit your site they trust you more because they can see you know your stuff so um, the fact that maybe in the past that hasn't been something that's taking up most of your client work time it's neither here nor there. The pro- the point is that you're solving problems. And yeah. um, so there are, that, that's not the only way you can do it. I mean, I know others do networking in um, fiction writing forums and have had success with it. Um, my only issue with that is that it requires constant vigilance, vigilance and it's not searchable. So mm. it could be effective, but it can also be draining. Whereas if you write a blog post about, say, using language appropriate for middle grade kids books um that's something you write once but you can share it over and over it's it you can place it on your website and it's there for as long as you want it to be um it's something you 
you only have to do once, but you can repurpose into a PowerPoint slide or a booklet or something else. So what I mean is you, that you do one thing and yes, it takes you time, but you get value from it forever. It's evergreen content. Yeah, um, it's totally the, worth it as well, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it, it takes time, but it's time that it, it reaps the rewards over a much longer period of time. Yeah. The other thing about you, Alexa, is that um, you're a published author of children's books. <laughs> See, you know what the problems are. You know what you're talking about. You've sat on the other side of the fence. So use all that authorial experience to guide you. But also, don't be afraid to, to make it known that you, you know, that's part of your messaging. Um, you've walked in fiction authors' clients many times. You know what it's like to work with a publisher. You know what it's like to be edited. You know what it's like to have someone design a book. Uh, a cover for one of your buckets. You know what it's like to have to meet, uh, meet a writing deadline. Some of your clients don't know all of this stuff, but we'll go searching for answers to those questions and you can answer them because you've done it. So write about the problem and how to solve it. That's such a good point, yeah. And having been on the other side of the fence is such a valuable perspective mm, to have, Alexa. Especially so, in that specialist area. Yeah, yeah, so make the most of it, definitely, yeah. yeah. And Alexa also asked about time. She said, she said, I think I'm maybe just quite a slow editor and proofreader, but I feel it takes me all my time to get the work done and I'm then not spending time on my business, doing the blogging, etc. She said she'd love to have a strategy for incorporating the creative aspects around her business too. What says you, Louise? So I totally get what you mean, Alexa. Um, and although I don't necessarily, um, I, you know, always myself work to the same numbers I'm going to give you here, um, I, I'm just going to give you a suggestion and see what you think about it. So how about this for a solution? Can you find 30 minutes each day to focus on your content? So let's say on Monday you spend 30 minutes writing a list of things your clients would find interesting. I just gave you a few when I talked before. <laughs> so let's say 30 blog post titles. So you have um, you have my blogging course, too. I know you do. <laughs> so um, that that will give you some ideas about how to work out what those blog posts, um, the focus of those blog posts would be and those titles would be. So that's Monday. And then on Tuesday, you have another 30 minutes. And, and this is where you, you pick one of those titles and you start planning. So the title, the main headings and the subheadings, and maybe a one line summary of each section that you're going to write about. And then on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, you spend 30 minutes filling in some of those paragraphs. Now, I don't know when you write fiction, whether you approach it as a pantser or a planner, but if you're a planner, then you've probably recognised some of what I'm talking about here. So it's just small steps each day. You break the task down. And rather than thinking, oh, my God, I've got to get my blogging strategy sorted and I have no time, you think in smaller steps, one post at a time or several sections of that post at I a time. I think it's so important because I think it's very easy for people to think, oh, gosh, writing a blog post, quite rightly, can, can take hours of my time. I'm never going to have mm. a block of time big enough to do that. But yeah. it's completely doable to yeah. split it up like that. I think that's a great suggestion. And, and, and then it's sort of you get away from that feeling of being overwhelmed by it. And mm. just like, you know, it's just like when you go out for a walk, you, you don't you don't think of the, the whole walk. You think about the little steps you take at a time, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the journey of it. And it, you know, it doesn't all have to be done at once. Um, just thinking a, a little more on that, um, can you multitask some of that as well? So perhaps um, this is something I do. Um, <laughs> maybe you can take a soak in the bath 
and think about things you could write about. Or, um, you know, I love coming up with ideas. <laughs> so sad. I spend <laughs> my bath time thinking about my marketing strategy, but never mind. Um, <laughs> um, or, or maybe you could take a coffee break, um, coffee break and just pull away from your editing for 30 minutes and do this completely different thing instead. Mm-hmm. Um, and just one more other thing to th- throw into the bag and then I'll hand over to Denise. Um, Buffer is a really great free scheduling tool that means you can massively reduce how much time it takes you to actually schedule those posts once you've got them. You're, you're, you, Alexa, are already engaging on social media. Facebook and Twitter is where I see you the most. So use that time and space to share your own stuff. You're already wonderfully generous about sharing other people's content. People will share yours too. That's that's a really good, thorough answer that Louise has given you there. And I just want to give you some some of my perspectives here too, Alexa, because I think you you principally work on nonfiction at the moment, um, and that's where I do most of my well, all of my work. Um, and I, and I think also you have to be realistic about the hours that are available to you, and, mm. and I think you get better at doing that um, and realizing that just maybe because you're sitting at your desk for you know seven or eight hours in a day or whatever it is, you're not editing that whole time. And and I think it took me a while to to acknowledge that and actually reflect that in how much time I allocated for jobs. Um, and if and if you're a slow editor, um, well, what does slow even mean anyway? <laughs> you know. I, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think that's maybe just a, a value judgment you're placing on yourself without maybe necessarily having any hard evidence to back that up. So so be kind to yourself there, um, and don't and and focus more on what. Are you getting through your projects effectively? And to do that, I would say take advantage of all the things that we've talked about in in other podcast episodes, because I know you've listened to them all, Alexa, um, (laughs) about uh, things like using macros or um, working efficiently. Um, I tend to work on multiple projects simultaneously and um, they're educational books. So I tend to, I track everything. I track everything in Toggle, which is free. Um, and I track things by units or chapters. Um, I work back from the deadline and I divvy up um, the work so that I know approximately how many chapters or deadlines I have, um, chapters or units I need to do each day. Um, and the other thing is I don't work linearly through, and I know like, this is not unique to me, lots of editors do this, but it's something that people definitely improve with over time, I think. I don't work linearly, so I take multiple passes through multiple um units or chapters at the same time and um, looking for specific things so um, I'll use checklists built from my brief or from the style guide and I'll perhaps go through and check all the headings across not just all the pages in one file but all the pages in all the files because then I'm focusing on that one specific thing and you're, you're I think that's something that's tuned in sorry Louise yeah that's no I'm sorry um that is something I think that's really really good tip for non-fiction work because there are so many often so many elements yeah um so yeah that's yeah. great tip. it's one of the things that I teach in my introduction to proofreading course is that methodical approach and using checklists and taking multiple passes at things and not panicking that you're not actually reading anything yet but you're focusing on other elements of it because there are so many there can be so many different elements in a non-fiction mm. book that you need to um, that you need to address. So I find that really improves my efficiency. It feels counterintuitive initially, but it definitely works works better. 
Over time. Uh, some brilliant tips there um, mm. for um, not only her Alexa's fiction strategy, but also for um, co coping with um, her current workload yeah. as well. Yeah. So thanks for that. Okay. Um, our next question is from Katie in the UK. Um, she asks, can you address contracts, please? For example, isn't email discussion enough or should there be something more formal in place? And if so, what sort of layout and content should it have? Um, email agreements are fine. Uh, one thing you might consider, Katie, however, is creating something that encourages the client to take a specific action. So indie authors, um, you could follow my example and have a booking form that forms a contract of services too on your website. So if you go to my terms and conditions page and take a look at mine, it asks the client to tick specific boxes and those boxes mean that they're agreeing to the price, the deposit, and that they've read and agreed to the terms and conditions and so on. Now there's no right or way to, to, to right or wrong way to do this or to lay it out. What's important is that your client understands that what they're agreeing to. And by using a website contact form, um, which is all mine is, it's just a, a tweaked one of those. Um, you have something specific on file that's about that project. And in, in my case, uh, a client can't fix their slot on my schedule without having filled that booking form in. That's that's really good advice there. Um, I mean, effectively, you write your own contract with your client and your email exchange, which, as Louise said, can be enough. It clearly outlines the scope. As long as it does that, it forms part of your contract. Mm. And the, the key thing about it is you, I always send an email asking them to confirm that they've accepted all the details in the, the email below. So you've got an email chain and then you have a confirmation from them that they're happy with all those details. Um, and that's yeah. and that's enough. But yeah, I also have a terms and conditions and that sort of thing too. Um, if you're a member of a, a professional organisation such as the CIEP or Editors Canada, um, or iPad, um, it may well be that you can get contract guidance and model terms and conditions um, that are available from there um, for members. I know the CIEP does have some and I think they're being updated at the moment actually. Um, the other thing to say, that's, that's all fine and very much within your control if you're working with um, indie authors and certain organisations, but publishers um, you're much more likely just to be expected to sign their contract based you know working to their terms which is mm. fine um but there are some things that you do have to watch out for and the big one in particular for editors and proofreaders is for an unreasonable indemnity clause um which effectively asks you to indemnify them against all losses as a result of your actions or inactions and this could be to the tune of tens of millions of pounds so <laughs> these clauses um it's it's not reasonable for for an editor to sign a contract with them because you don't have the final sign off on the document um most of the time so you can't be sure that what you return is therefore what what is being used um so there are there are very few circumstances where you could say that an editor or proofreader would be responsible for something that caused a publishing company major losses. I am not yeah. a legal expert, so don't take no, anything I, I see as gospel, but this is something that crops up frequently with editors, and there's a lot of discussion about it on editors' Facebook groups, in the CIEP forum, um, so that's not something you should sign without having somebody else look at it, definitely. So our next question is from Maria, who's also in the UK. And Maria's wondering what to include when she emails publishers for work. 
she asks, would you just send your CV or do a detailed email as well in the same way that you would with a covering letter for a job application? So Louise, what's your take on this? So I haven't worked for publishers for some years now, but this is my um, this is my approach that I used to take. Um, publishers are busy, so keeping on point is key. Give them what they need to know. They need to know you can hit the ground running and that you're fit for purpose. So tell them about things like the training you've done, your prior editorial experience, the subjects you special in, specialise in, for example, social sciences, education or humanities, the software you can use, um, for example, Word or a PDF editor. Um, that you can work with styles and templates if required, that you can use industry standard markup language like the BSI proof correction symbols, um, and that you're happy to do a test if required. Um, but the other thing you might consider is designing an attractive one-page PDF flyer that summarises these key points so they have something that they can keep on file. So something that's a little bit more interesting to look at than a bog standard CV or resume, but um, and I say both of those words just because um, I, I sort of use them interchangeably. But mm. I know that I, particularly some of our colleagues in, in Canada and, and the States um, differentiate them. But I'm, I'm talking yeah. about just just something that looks a, a little bit more engaging and that's really, really focused. So not something that's talking about what job you did like 15 years ago, um, but it's, it's, it's editing focused. I think that's a really good point. I think the, the key thing to remember here is something that Louise mentioned already is that in-house editors are busy people and mm. they will be inundated um, with um, requests for work or expressions of interest. And so you want to be able to grab their attention um, without making them think, oh God, here's a whole huge wall of text that I have to read. So mm. um, something that's attractive to look at and gets the key points across quickly is really important. Uh, so I would say, you know, keep your introductory email short, highlight key relevant details, like Louise said, um, that'll interest them enough to maybe investigate you a bit further, whether that's clicking through to your website or having a look at your LinkedIn profile or oh. looking at the one page flyer that you've attached. Um, but I, I'd be interested to hear from any in-house editors who are listening about how they prefer um, freelancers to interact with them because mm. it's, it's a good thing for, it's a good question to ask and it's one that possibly the answer might have changed over time. And uh, certainly when I, I did a little round table um, with some um, in-house editors the other day through the literary consultancy yeah. and they, they didn't talk spe specifically about what to include, I don't think, but what they they did they did make it clear that they ex they were happy to and expect to hear from freelancers so this is sort of a, a slightly a side question a side answer but um people who are looking to get freelance work for, for publishers shouldn't feel shy about making direct contact um publishers have their hands raised they understand what we do and and how we can be of value to them so um you know do do yeah. do you know, feel positive about Don't be afraid to that. get in touch with them. I think yeah. that's, that's the thing. Yeah. 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 So our next question is from Ilsa, um, also in the UK. We have got people from other countries coming up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, Ilsa says it would be wonderful on um, to hear about any tips on ways to link up with others. Um, so we can answer this quite quite quickly, actually, Ilsa. Mm -hmm. Sorry if you feel um, like you've had less some. Um, um, rabbiting time from us but um, so the Facebook community for editors is huge uh, 
that's what uh, that's where I would recommend you go. Editors Association of Earth Facebook group and its sister groups on fiction, professional development. I think there's a few more as well. Um, mm -hmm. And there's also a group called um, Editors Who Talk Tech. So head to Facebook. Definitely. That's a good starting point. Yeah. Mm. And um, you're in the UK. So I'm going to say that if you're not a member of the Chartered Institute of Editing and Proofreading, CIEP, you should consider joining. Um, you'll have access to its forums, which are always busy and full of people from all over the place with different levels of experience and different specialisms. They also have um, about 40 local groups um, who meet regularly. Obviously, at the moment with the COVID-19 pandemic, they can't meet in person, but they're all meeting. Well, almost all of them are meeting via Zoom at the moment, which is absolutely fantastic to see. And we also have an annual conference. Um, which normally happens in September. And again, this year, because of COVID, it's not going to be in person, but we are currently exploring how to make it virtual. So yes, definitely Exciting. join. Yeah. And the one thing I would say is, um, uh, to, just to add to that, is that um, it took me a little while uh, to uh, to join. I think it was a, maybe a year before I joined um, the CIEP or the SFEP as it was back in those days. But um, I, I had no idea before I joined that how many friends I would make there. And that yeah. is the thing. It's not just about linking up with other editors. It's about an opportunity to form friends, uh, friendships with, with people who do what you do for a living. And it's how Denise and me met. I mean, yeah. we, 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 we'd we seen each other online and then we ended up sitting together at a conference <laughs> one year and had yeah. a bit of a giggle and we got to know each other more and more. And the rest is history, really. But yeah. um. So Ilsa, if 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 you have the budget for it and and you um and do do please go and have a look at the CIE website. It's 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 such a a, a, a fabulous community. It really is, yes. and it's international. It's yes. international as well. It's not it's not just a bunch of um people in the the UK. It's, you know, it, it has members from from all over the world, and it has a very international ethos. That's a really good point as well for all our overseas listeners. Yeah. 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 So next up is somebody from overseas, and that's Tanya, who is based in Canada. And um, she says, as someone who has clients in different countries, I'd like to know how best to work with different currencies and fluctuations in exchange rates. Do you choose a base currency, the one where you live, and do the maths every time you quote a different currency? Or do you set an hourly or per word fee in all of your currencies each year and keep it in place regardless of what exchange rate fluctuations are doing. What do you think? Well, Louise? I might be um, being a bit lazy, but I work in pounds and I invoice in pounds mm -hmm. and PayPal does the conversions automatically when payments are made um, using that. Mm -hmm. I think the bank does them too. Yeah. Um, if we're doing direct bank, bank transfers. Um, but I like to keep things simple about, um, I think, I think around 60% of my clients are, not in the uk so um and i've never had any problems with it and the, the reason i do it like that is because i just don't want to faff around with currency fluctuations and and <laughs> what i'm really concerned with is how much it costs me to live where i live i'm i'm uh, it, it's it, and it hasn't bothered any of my indie fiction clients so far yeah. and um so when the pound tanked after the brexit referendum um i i, I even appeared a bit cheaper so so yeah. it can even be an advantage sometimes to be um invoicing mm -hmm. in, in another currency swings and roundabouts yeah definitely yeah I, I mean if you're happy invoicing in multiple currencies then go for it i mean there's no right or wrong about mm. it but just keep it simple i think um if you think your clients will care about it then the time that it takes you to do it is just a cost of business and 
has to be born but i think do what feels right to you tanya okay. yeah yeah okay next up katie from the uk again i think we've already answered one of katie's questions we have we? yeah we have she put two in, she put in, mm-hmm. two in. that's right Katie says, I'm just starting out and I'm wondering what to put on my invoices. What do I do about VAT? Do I charge it? And if so, at what rate? I am not yet registered as a freelancer or as a limited company. Do I claim the VAT back? If so, how? Well, Katie, there's quite a straightforward question to this. In the UK, you don't need to be VAT registered in the UK unless you earn over £85,000 a year. Instead, you can just register as a sole trader and you don't have to worry about it at all. Yeah. And there are certain things that legally need to be on your invoice, though. Um, mm-hmm. I would recommend heading to um, gov.uk. It's pretty good for guidance on this kind of information. But briefly here, um, as a sole trader, you need to include a unique identification number. So it could be your initials, a month code and a chronological number or something. Um, just make it up. Your personal name, your business name. Um, your address and contact information, the address of the customer you're invoicing, a description of what you're charging for, for example, a 50,000 worth proofread, um, the date the service was provided, the date the invoice is being sent, the amounts being charged, um, and the total amount owed. And if you were um, registered for that, um, you would have to put on on that, but you don't have to worry about that. Um, so yeah, that just... Um, do, do do go and have a look at the the gov.uk site but um that, that, that those are those are what you what you need to have yeah and it doesn't need to be anything complicated uh, i use my invoices i use word and then i just i have a template and then i just save each one as a pdf which is another mm-hmm. point worth bearing in mind if you do create your own don't send a word document always save it as a pdf yes 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 so it can't be changed um but louise i think you use wave which is Mm -hmm. free um, and you can create your own custom invoice templates in that can't you yeah lovely lovely sweet little tool there are other options that that editors use like quickbooks i use quickbooks for recording my transactions but i don't produce invoices from it just yet and there is a small charge attached to that i think it's about seven quid a month or something like that it just depends on what you want your accounting software to do um it's also a good idea to put your bank details on um your invoice too louise and i both do this it's standard practice in the uk at the bottom of every invoice i have my bank name sort code um account number and i also have my iban and bic or swift numbers which are Mm. used for international bank transfers and um, Louise and I were discussing this earlier. We know that some of our colleagues overseas, particularly in North America, um, are quite cautious about providing this information. But um, as we said, it's, it's standard practice in the UK. There's no more information provided there than would be on a cheque that you wrote. Um, and to my knowledge, nobody's ever had an issue with having that information on their invoice. It makes it easier yeah. for your client. Yeah. So finally, for this episode, at least, um, we're going to answer a question from Maeve in the UK. And Maeve says, I'd love your advice on the order in which to tackle starting up a business. For example, networking and finding clients are high priority, but do I need to have a brand and a website up and running? Should I be active on social media, etc. first? How about productivity tools? Well, I think we can help you in all these counts, Maeve. Um, I think you're very wise to start organising yourself 
while you're still training. Um, so the basic things I'd want to ask you is, do you have the physical kit you need now? Have you got a decent computer, a good internet connection? Have you installed Word because it's the standard, industry standard, and really most people expect mm. to work in it? Good, yep. um, good point. And some form of software for uh, working with PDFs. Um, if you need a PDF editor, then PDF Exchange is much cheaper than Acrobat, um, but it has good functionality. Um, but my understanding is that there can be compatibility issues with PDF Exchange and importing um, text from that into InDesign. Um, if you're basically working, focusing on working as a proofreader and don't need to actually edit your PDFs, then Acrobat Reader DC is free, absolutely fine. It's the industry standard and it's more than enough for proofreading. That's what I yeah. use. I don't use anything else. Yeah. Good point. Um, so I think considering your, um, after you've thought about the, the sort of physical and technical stuff you need, um, I think considering your brand identity is a good place to start because mm -hmm. it requires us to think about who our clients are and what their problems are and who we are and what we stand for. And that means that when we come to think about the way we communicate our message and our marketing activities, we do so in a way that's consistent, that's on brand. So branding and marketing are aligned, but if you if you sort of do your branding later, you, you could end up finding that you have to sort of go back on yourself. And that, that's exactly what I did. You know, I, I, I sort of motored along with my marketing for for years and I was very committed to it. But mm -hmm. actually when I sat down and and and, and really really delve deep into to my brand identity and 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 i i found that i needed to to change a lot of things and i'm glad i did change them it's just a, if if i'd known what i know now i'd have done all this at the beginning yeah, yeah but it's a journey isn't it yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 that's how we always describe it when we haven't done things quite in the order we should have done oh yeah well it was a learning experience, learning experience. It's a learning <laughs> yes curve. yes yeah so maybe once you know who your ideal clients are and you've worked through a brand strategy, you can incorporate all that into the look and content of your website so that your message is coherent and it really resonates. Otherwise, you'll do what Louise did and spend a lot of time faffing around with a website and then change it all <laughs> yeah. to make it fit a brand. So yeah. the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> so next up, if you've decided on a business name, at least get a single landing page up. Um, on a website so that visitors have some way of finding out more about you in a space that you control. But ultimately, a website should be about you, your clients rather than you. It, it should be a space in which they feel like you're solving their problems. Um, and, and that's what we'd both recommend if you want a website that's going to stand out because there are lots and lots of editor websites out there, but most of them are, are sort of very much focused on, on uh, sort of making a big deal out of training and qualifications all of which are important uh, of mm. course but the thing is that you're you're not you're, you don't stand out then because n nobody ever sort of launches an editorial website saying that they're really rubbish and that they don't have any training and so it's it's not it's it's not a it's not a it's there it's a strong baseline which should absolutely be in place but it shouldn't be front of it's, it's, it shouldn't be the thing you're trying to sell on yeah. you know so so do yeah yeah yeah. And that's why if you get your brand strategy sorted, then uh, then your, your website can become a really powerful marketing tool. Great. Yeah, definitely. But alongside that, you can start planning how else you're going to get in front of all those ideal clients and think about what tactics you're going to use. Is it going to be content marketing, uh, which is what Louise and I both advocate? Are you going to be using phone calls or letters or 
sending emails to publishers? Are you going to try in-person networking? Um, are you going to focus on using social media? The strategy that you choose will absolutely depend on who your target clients are and where they hang out because you need yeah. to meet them where they hang out. And if you're focused on early on on thinking about your brand strategy, you'll have already gone through that, had that conversation with yourself about who your target clients are, what they look like. So that's why we've suggested this order. Um, finally, um, productivity and efficiency tools will be great. Um, but they're not the priority now during mm. training. Um, you don't want to overload yourself. Instead, give your time, give yourself time to discover what you need. In, uh, but in the meantime, use the freebies available, online dictionaries and thesauri. And paid tools can be added later once you're settled and once you know where the value is for so your particular type of chosen work with the kind of clients you're working with. You don't want to end up forking out for, um, uh, I don't know, InDesign is really, really amazing software, apparently but mm. I never use it. And so there's no point in me having it. And so, you know, you might hear people raving about it, but actually it, it's not necessary. Um, yeah. you, you you know, other people rave about the Chicago Manual of Style, but do you need an online subscription? Perhaps not. I do, but um, that's my type of work. Um, so so work out, work out um, just just give yourself a little bit of time to work out what, what you need. Yeah. So that's it for this episode. We'll be back again in part two very, very soon. Yeah, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We've had a great time putting it together. Thank you so much for listening to the Editing Podcast. You can rate, review and subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whichever platform you prefer. And we'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.